Hello, I'm Reggie Young. I'm joined with my co-host here, Matt Ambrose and Dave. I've had Matt here on our earlier episode. Matt, if you could please introduce Dave and give us a little bit of quick overview about Dave. Hi, folks. How's it going today? Um, I'm honored to introduce a friend of mine, uh, mentor Dave Williams. Dave has been in the industry for 25 plus years. He's a global award-winning startup CEO in the digital age. He's also the digital nomad pioneer and adventurer. He's the co-founder of NomadX and an ambassador, an ambassador of many um, multiple startups and founders. He's also an expert in startups and has built and sold three companies successfully worth over $10 million each. I originally um, met up with Dave in Arafana in Portugal last I was there. And we, um, we had a really great lunch, which turned into dinner, which turned into breakfast, which turned into lunch again the next day. And um, had a great time and we've been uh, really good friends ever since. So welcome, Dave. Thank you for, for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Matt and Reggie. Really, really excited to be here with you guys today. Thanks so much. Yes, we're, we're definitely excited to have you. And um, my understanding too, having looked at uh, your LinkedIn profile and then of course hearing pretty in-depth conversations about you and Matt. Matt told me you recently had a pretty big exit or multiple exits. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there were three exits for $10 million each around there. Could you maybe expand on what those businesses were and maybe that 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 exit process and maybe like your journey, just mm-hmm. like, like a quick overview? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, well, I got my start back in the dot-com era, so I'm kind of an old-timer, I guess, by uh, internet standards. Uh, but yeah, I'd gone to grad school back in 96, 97, and uh, right when the internet was starting to take off, and that's when I really got passionate about the internet. Uh, before that, I had done a lot of accounting and finance work. So my background was much more as a CPA working at Price Waterhouse. I was looking to make a career change. And uh, it just really opened my eyes up to the growth and the potential of the internet in the early days. And a lot of these early day companies, you know, companies like the Amazons and Ebays and a lot of the early, early day companies on the internet. And uh, yeah, just wrote a lot of business plans, was thinking a lot about different businesses. And then after I graduated, I started a company called 360i, which is one of the first early search engine marketing and ad tech companies. Um, so we were doing a lot of SEO, a lot of search engine marketing, pay-per-click buying. Um, and then we also had a technology platform called Search Ignite, uh, which changed its name to Ignition One, which is one of the early um, API, ad API companies with Google. Um, and we were optimizing you know, billions of dollars in ad spend. So you know, a couple billion dollars we were managing. Uh, for big brands. And then we ended up selling the company in 2005. We sold both companies, the the, the Search Ignite and the 360i business to a New York-based firm. Um, we still retained some equity in the new company. Um, and then that company was sold uh, to a Japanese-based firm, um, which didn't work out. Apparently, I guess they had done some acquisitions that weren't done properly. And their, 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 their stock kept devalued on the Japanese exchange. And there were a lot of issues, like even the, the CFO of the company committed suicide samurai style from oh, raised wow. in Japan. The CEO was driving Ferraris around Japan, which is like totally frowned upon. So anyway, so we ended up buying the company back. Um, I was a smaller shareholder at that point, but then the company grew and then they sold the company again. And I think it was 2010 uh, for like total valuation of over 400 million. Um, and at the same time, I'd started a, another business called Blink Media. So instead of focusing on search, we were focused on social media advertising with one of the first five global ad API partners 
with Facebook. Um, and we did a lot of work for ad agencies. So they would, we would manage their campaigns for them using our technology. And uh, that company started in 2008. We moved the headquarters to New York City. And then we expanded into uh, multiple places like Boston, Chicago, West Coast, San Francisco, London. Um, all within two years, acquired four companies. And then we sold the company to Gannett, which is a Fortune 500 company. Um, and that transaction was named like a top 10 transaction in New York City that year. Um, and then I started really my nomad journey after that. Uh, we started traveling the world and then we ended up here in Portugal and most recently started a company back in 2016, 17 called Nomad X, um, which is essentially a platform for digital nomads, really focused on community uh, in multiple locations uh, throughout Portugal and then also throughout the world in Cabo Verde and even down in Pipa, Brazil. So that's the current focus at the moment. Uh, but more so, I'm an investor, advisor. I like to work with early stage startup founders just to give back. And um, yeah, I really like to be early. I like to be a pioneer in the industry. And then once I've kind of exceeded my capabilities, I like to remove myself from the industry and then I kind of move on to the next thing. So yeah, anyway, excellent. that's kind of yeah. my story. <laughs> yeah, it's an excellent story. You know, looking at like at your LinkedIn profile, then of, of course, like having you mirror an overview of what you've done. It looks like you've been like a really, really early adopter to massive, massive trends. Like obviously like paid advertising. And I, I saw that you were like an up, maybe an advisory board to DoubleClick, which my understanding was acquired by Google. So like being super early and then being there in such a massive way, like how are you identifying those trends? Like what, what's like your framework for kind of, for being that on that first mover advantage and being there in such a powerful way? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, I was always interested in the internet and just studying a lot of different internet companies and just seeing what they were doing uh, to gain traction. So Amazon was the one that I really focused a lot of my efforts on. And that was back in like 96, 97. So you could imagine, I think they went public in 97 and they were, they, they were only generating about 10 million in revenue at the time. Um, wow. and so, yeah, I just, I like to kind of tag along behind some of the bigger players in the space. And it just turned out that Google became very dominant, but even before Google, um, we were working with one of the early pay-per-click companies. There was a company called GoTo, which was the original CPC search engine company. And we were buying clicks for like one cent per click. Yeah. We even got access to their IPO. And then even with Google, we were one of the first agencies in the world to buy advertising from Google. Um, and so, yeah, we tried to develop very early stage relationships. And then with these big companies, what I typically will try and do is become very close with the, the sales reps or some of the top people, um, uh, at these companies. And, uh, and so basically learning more about what they're doing, what their strategy is trying to align our strategy with their strategies, and then, uh, basically become partners to the point where they're referring business to us, or we have such a premium. Like with Google, we were named their number one partner in the whole U.S. in 2007. We won the Marketing Machine Award. And then even with Facebook, they gave us the most the innovation award in uh, 2013. So with each one, of these, each one of these businesses, we really try and innovate around their platform, build really, really strong relationships uh, with the people within the company. So if anything goes wrong or there's any issues, you know, we get those resolved very, very quickly. And then try and get access to their roadmap. So we're we're kind of building our strategy in line with the Facebook and Googles, 
you know, even to the point where all of our employees will get certified on the platform. So, you know, in the early days they had the certification. So even like our, even my executive assistant was certified in Google advertising, wow. you know, so wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. You just kind of go and trying to go deep in the niche too. So we, as much as we were doing Google, like when we started becoming really successful, that was once we had built our own technology. So we weren't just a services company. So typically I've started the business as a services company, you know, contracted employees, you know, maybe like what you're doing with Matt right now, you guys are kind of working together. But then as soon as you start finding people on the team that are working well as contractors, then bringing them on board as full-time employees or even acquiring their businesses, if it's multiple people, uh, bringing them in. Because a lot of times the, the, the smaller time entrepreneurs, they don't like dealing with all the finances and everything else. They just want to be part of a bigger ship. We did, we did some acquisitions with our, uh, with our 360i business with Search Ignite. And then when I was with Blink Media, we did about four acquisitions in a year. Um, and then just try to scale very, very quickly um, as, we, as fast as we can into the marketplace. Um, and to the point and really build a strong reputation in the marketplace where customers start coming to us versus us having to go to the customers. So obviously in the early stages of a business, you're having to track down customers. But ideally, you get to the point where you become so well recognized where Forrester, Matt, you know, Forrester, which is the big research firm in the U.S., named us the number one search engine marketing company in the U.S., the number one performance marketing agency in the U.S. So at that point, you know, basically people are coming, the best companies are coming to you. So that's the ideal scenario to be in where a lot of the other search marketing companies were, you know, maybe they weren't doing the SEO right or they're a little sketchy in their approach or whatever it might be. And uh, reputationally, they they burned a lot of clients. So we would always try and take the high road, but we'd also try and really bring in strategies and tactics that were more uh, maybe black hat strategies, but bring them more towards like a white hat approach. But be doing strategies that typically only maybe affiliate marketers would use, but using those same strategies in a, in a better way for the big brands. And so, yeah, just really bringing unique strategies to play, bringing really unique technology to play. Um, the technology we started typically building at least a couple years into the business. Um, so we founded the Blink Media in 2008, but we didn't start building the technology until about the end of 2009, 2010, we got approved. And so having the services combined with the technology, we felt really helped differentiate us. Whereas I think a lot of companies are just pure technology or pure mm -hmm. services, but I really think the best companies offer a combination of the two. Very interesting. Dave, how did you get um, your team together to help you with this? Like, How many people on average did you have working with you? Um, well, basically in the early days, you know, it just, it's kind of, I, I liked the early part of the startup phase. So, you know, I, I kind of lose interest once we get a lot of managers and once we have to start building a lot of processes and everything. Um, and then once the industry starts getting very competitive, cause then the, the bigger companies come in and they're trying to hire away our employees. Um, but basically, yeah, you know, we get the companies to about 50 people and that's typically when I would sell them. But I'd say like my sweet spot is more like up to like 20 people. Like I, I really like it almost like playing on a soccer team where everyone's on the field together. It's not, you don't have the A team, the B team, the C team. It's like, you know, the youngest person on the team is working with the most senior person on the team and you're all working together. And then I like to also share equity with all the team members because I like the idea of everyone working together. And then uh, if there's a good outcome, like we're all shooting to have the company sold at some point. 
um, so that everyone benefits, you know, whether that's like having extra money in the bank account, paying off a mortgage, paying off student loans, you know, like really making it something that's a significant event for everyone that they typically don't get. Um, and I typically don't like to work. I don't like to work with VCs. I don't like to work with investors. I typically like to bootstrap the business myself. I just reinvest cash flow back into the company uh, and then lean on banks or lines of credit um, for any short, sort of short term financing that I need. So as the business grows, then I typically will grow the line of credit and uh, just keep scaling the business that way. I mean, the only risk is if you have a big downturn and then you've got a big line of credit without the revenue to back it up. Uh, but I found that to be the most successful path for me. I just, I just don't like being told what to do. I can't. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. get that. Yeah. I also love the idea too, of like keeping it small, like bootstrapped. And I would imagine that comes with like a pretty flat corporate structure, which, which makes collaboration fun, uh, makes connection uh, much more honest and authentic. How do you go about like managing those different uh, experiences, age levels, and then kind of keep, keeping people on one team? How do you manage that, that culture from, from where you're at? Yeah. Well, for me, it's all about winning, number one, and having fun. So, you know, we try and bring the best people we can on the team. In the early stages, there aren't a lot of people that have experience in the industry. Um, so trying to find people that are really passionate about the industry. So whether that's at industry events, um, even local industry associations, like I've always tried to be, you know, on the board or leading the board at different industry associations where like when I was based in Atlanta, I was big in the Atlanta Interactive Marketing Association. Uh, for the search space, I was in the SEMPO, which is a search engine marketing professional organization, which used to be the number one group globally. They, they merged with another company recently, but I was on their, their global board for two years, um, elected by all the search engine marketers globally. Um, and then also on these other boards, like that you saw, like the double click, Yahoo's board, Bing's board, they would fly us out to Vegas and we would sit around oh. the table and talk about the technology with a big hangover. <laughs> it sounds fun. Yeah, just try and get in early and get in very tight with the leaders in the industry and even like uh, even peers. So in the industry boards, it's nice because I get a chance to work with my competitors basically, but with the idea of just all us trying to grow the industry together and share ideas with each other. And uh, yeah, I'm more, I'd say like an outside CEO. A lot of CEOs are more operational and they, they tend to get into like the analytics, the details and the managing of the people. I'm not really a people manager, so I need to hire really good people at the top um, to manage the people beneath them. Because um, I would say management's not really my expertise. I'm more like strategic leader. I really love sales, business development, really trying to position the brand as one of the leading brands in the industry. But I think whatever business it is that you get into, trying to establish a leadership position or at least be in a situation where you can have a leadership position in that industry is super important because one is it's going to attract more business, it's going to attract uh, more clients. And then also if someone's looking to buy a business, they always want to pay, they always want to buy the leader. So what I'll typically see, and you'll see this even with the, uh, with the companies on the, on the stock exchanges, you know, the leaders typically get the 10x over the ones that are in second or third place. So by establishing leadership in a category, you tend to win more business, you tend to get a higher valuation, and you tend to attract the people you know, in that space as well. What advice would you give to someone who's looking to, to buy or sell a business themselves? 
What, what, what's that again, Matt? Sorry. So what, what advice would you give to somebody if they were looking to buy or sell a business themselves? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, like for me, um, the first business, we knew we wanted to sell it. So we hired an investment banker, for example, like hire someone that has connections in the industry that can help you prepare, like, a, you know, just all the basic documents. Um, you basically want to create like an online, you know, uh, drive where basically you're storing all your financials, all of the due diligence documents. Um, I think to have a good sale, like I, I was a CPA in the early stages of my life, which I it wasn't really that fond of. But what it taught me was I would go into companies and help get them ready to, to go public. And a lot of the companies, their financials were a mess. You know, it took us a long time to audit the books. Um, and so their legal documents may not always be in perfect shape. So I th think these are things that you don't really think about a whole lot as an entrepreneur, but having really good financial records. Um, so if someone needs to find documents, they're, it's well documented. You have like closed out at least monthly, quarterly statements. Um, and then on top of that, if you're building technology, making sure the technology is well built and it's got, um, it's, it's easy for someone to go in and do an audit. Um, you know, to the point where the, the technology, you can run tests on the technology as you add, you know, we were always doing, uh, you know, so as you're, as you're very able to like, we can run tests on the technology, go in and see like the, uh, all the coding is done well. Um, a lot of these things can get you in trouble because if the auditors come in and they see things that don't look so good, then all of a sudden you get a reduction in value. Um, whereas if all this stuff looks good, then you're going to get an increase in value. Um, and it's also very distracting. So going through an acquisition, you know, you get to focus a lot of your energy on these new buyers and trying to pitch the business to the new buyers. Um, I've also had situations too, with my second company where we were in a meeting and the company really wanted to add our capability and they wanted to do a partnership, but instead of the partnership, we decided to do an acquisition. So it was a good timing for us. They had a lot of interest. So I was able to kind of, you know, kind of, instead of just doing the partnership, which can be a good way to start, but. Uh, we were afraid they were going to steal, steal a lot of our knowledge. They were really excited about the space and they had the money to do it. So um, sometimes you can be sort of opportunistic about it as well. Mm -hmm. If you have people in, if you have clients or partners that are already in your network um, that seem to really like what you're doing, then those can be good contacts. But at the same time, you know, if you hire an investment banker, for example, a lot of times they're going to come up with uh, investment targets that you hadn't thought of before. So even though I found the, the acquirer, we still hired an investment bank to have a competitive process because the ultimate situation is you want multiple companies bidding on the business, which will drive up price. So if you can get two or three companies that are very interested, then you can really increase the price of the business as well. Yeah, I love that. You know, I'm thinking too, like, I, I really love the advice you gave earlier about when you're driving value forward to pair both service and technology together, whereas most businesses are either doing one or the other. Um, so th we have some roadmaps as well uh, that we're trying to build out that do a little bit of the same. When it comes to the acquisition aspect of it, what what do you see as like being too, what's different about an acquisition from a software perspective and an acquisition from like a, a, a service-based perspective? Like you said, it, it, I would imagine if I'm, if I'm trying to sell the software portion, someone coming in and just trying to get information and then leaving, how do you kind of protect those assets while still um, either maintaining a high value exit or, you know, operating effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, usually, um, you get into a situation where you have like multiple buyers, they sign letters of intent, they sign non-disclosure agreements, 
you're pretty far in the process before you let them actually go in and take a look at the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, at some point you have to have like, uh, you know, you have to feel comfortable with that process. Mm-hmm. Um, I would and also then- say, yeah, there's, and when you start going through the legal process, yeah, you get a letter of intent in place, you go through the audit and then sometimes some things don't come back like they should. Maybe revenue is not tracking exactly as you forecasted. So a lot of times they might try and come back and adjust the price on you. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to kind of hold, hold tough, you know, on the price. And, um, and then as you go through the process too, there's a lot of, uh, kind of legal back and forth when you're dealing with the lawyers, because the lawyers are all kind of jockeying with each other and they're going to give you a lot of points where this doesn't look good. That doesn't look good, but you really need to kind of feel like, okay, these are points that I don't care about, but maybe there's a few points that you really care about. And uh, just make sure that you get the, the key terms in there that you want, but don't, you can't fight for every single deal term. Otherwise, a lot of times these deals drag out and they just don't go through. So I think a fast acquisition is really the best acquisition. So being in a situation where you can start a deal process and even close it in a month or two, because a lot of times the deals will drag out six to 12 months. Um, and that can really mess up your operations in the meantime, because you've got an acquisition going on, you're not fundraising. You know, it's like uh, the CEO's focus is distracted, the CFO is distracted. So the faster you can do the acquisition, I feel like the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, with the services, a lot of times they want you to stick around for a bit because they want to they be able to see that the services revenues will be there. And if you're a strong leader, a lot of times they'll try and keep the leader on board for like uh, for an earnout sort of situation where they might want to keep you there for like at least like, a, I don't know, the one and a half to three years. Um, so that's the other thing comes along with it, where I think if it's pure technology you're selling, a lot of times, maybe they don't need the CEO, for example. So I've had friends that have sold mostly tech based businesses. And I, I say, it's like a helicopter dropping them off on the top of the mountain. <laughs> they, they don't have to do all the hard stuff. Cause it's like, once they sell it, they're done with it. And they just have their next business or moving on to. Um, that's the ideal situation. And for me, it's hard to work with a new acquirer, um, although I have a lot of experience with that because you're dealing with someone that's kind of new to the business. They require a lot of education. And then uh, obviously you want it to be successful. So it's a lot of work uh, integrating the two businesses. Yeah. I, I love what you said about a fast exit as well. Uh, obviously, we want to like get as many valuations as we can so we can play offers against one another. Uh, but literally, we just had this this past week, one of our... Uh, exits we're currently advising on right now, the buyer wanted to, they went through so much due diligence, I think over too much due diligence for the size of the deal where the sellers is their their second or third exit. So they're familiar with the process um, and they just kept going like way too much due diligence. It almost got to the point where it became disrespectful. And I feel like it's something that people have to either recognize you have to do your due diligence, but you also have to take into account the emotions uh, of the seller and, and, like you said, they're they're balancing operations while trying to sell the business, and the deal almost fell through. We had to kind of step in and say, "Hey, it's okay to stand your ground and say that, hey, this is, you know, I, at this point, due diligence is is basically done. This is our final offer. Take it or leave it." And at that point, we were able to speed up and just close out the um, the uh, the negotiations. And now, right, right now, we're doing the asset transfer. So I absolutely love the the advice you're giving the uh, the audience right now. I think. At least from our perspective, it definitely resonates with what, what Matt and I are seeing. Um, and then with that, I just had a quick question in terms of you know with the technology and the and the service side, because the two have 
probably have to complement each other. How do you decide what technology to build and at what point? Yeah. So I think it's really, um, you know, it's, it's a lot about timing in terms of where the industry is. And, and uh, you know, like for our software that was built, the Searching Night back in like 2003, 2004, it was more like SaaS-based software that people could log into on the internet. Whereas before that, it was more like a, I don't want to say a floppy disk. (laughs) (laughs) Loading it on your computer and doing updates that way. Um, But yeah, we had thought about doing the technology earlier uh, for the searching night, but it was just, uh, we didn't have the capabilities at the time. And at one point we had uh, um, one of of our, uh, a guy that we knew locally that was very successful, super smart technologist approach us. And so we we did the project together with him leading it, and uh, that was really successful. Um, I think having the right resources for the technology is super important. So having the right team, the team being very familiar with the category, with the with the Facebook we had actually had, there was a big Facebook um, app company based out of Atlanta that was doing a lot with Facebook pages. They're really familiar with their APIs, and uh, they were dissatisfied at the current company. It was a big VC funded company. Um, so we were able to actually migrate a lot of their tech employees over to Blank Media, and they were very familiar with mm-hmm. Facebook. So that really helped us um, kind of on the build outs. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think yeah, with the acquisitions, it's, uh, it's not so easy. And what happens a lot too, just uh, a lot of times people want to do the dil- take time on their diligence, because what happens is, especially if the company's not generating a ton of cash flows, a lot of times, you know, maybe if revenues slow down a little bit or something happens, they're trying to drag it out. So basically, they know when you're going to run out of cash because they've got all your information. So they'll try and take you to the point where you're almost out of cash. They know you don't have a way to raise cash. Just trying to sell the company. And then that's a way for them to get a much better deal. So if these companies start dragging out the acquisition process, which happened to me in the second deal, uh, we're supposed to do the deal in March, then we're supposed to do the deal in June, and we didn't get it done until August. Meanwhile, you know, the business is kind of bleeding cash, and I'm having to keep putting more and more money into the business. Um, and that can be kind of a scary process for uh, you know, for the sellers, especially if it's your own money. Yeah. Um, so that's like typically what companies will try and do, especially the big ones, because they know they can kind of, they, they're, they're smart in how they approach these things. So you got to kind of hold strong. Yeah, definitely. You bet. You mentioned a few times um, about uh, VC. Why would you not suggest VC? Uh, why do you not deal with VCs? Um, I mean, I think generally the VCs, you know, they're, they're, they invest in, uh, what you put, typically happens is these VCs, they'll come in, um, the earlier stage guys, they'll come in the early stage rounds. We may not put a huge amount of money in because uh, maybe they have 10, let's say they put money into 10 companies, for example. They know of those 10 companies, there are going to be th- maybe two or three that are really good. There's going to be you know, three or four that are kind of average. And then they're going to have some, some dogs that will probably go out of business pretty quickly. Um, and so if you're going the VC route, I mean, their whole goal is to keep giving you more and more money and for your business to become really big. Um, and the risk is they try and grow you too quickly and make you too reliant on them. They want you reliant on them because the more money they put in, the more equity they get. And then as you're growing, then the higher the valuation gets. Well, if something happens in the industry, like we just saw recently, uh, same thing happened in the dot com in 2008. So if you're too reliant on the VCs, then when you hit a down economy, next thing you know, you don't have the runway. Things pretty quickly, then the next thing you know, you become a tragedy sort of situation. 
So um, the VCs can be good if you've got a really big idea. I mean, if you're talking about a billion dollar company, they're required. But if you can get tra as much traction as you possibly can on your own, um, I think that's best. Uh, but I have had some friends too. You know, they've, they've, got, they've taken some smaller investments. The business has grown and turned it into a you know, billion dollar company. Uh, for example, like Calendly, you know, that was a company that's founded out of Atlanta. And I think they only got like a couple hundred thousand in financing and grew the company to a $2 billion valuation, wow. just basically bootstrapping the company. Didn't take on any money until they were at $2 billion, you know, yes. or I've had some similar things with other friends where they've gotten their companies up to $100 million. Didn't take on any money until they hit $100 million valuation. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, it's just the dealing with the VCs. Then you've got to listen to what they have to say. And not all of them are very familiar with your industry. And they're pushing you to do things that maybe you don't want to do. So you're making a lot of compromises. So I guess it just matters how confident you are and then how much you want control. And then, and then you also have to create these uh, <laughs> investor documents every month for the investors. And that can be very distracting as well, because you're spending a lot of your time dealing with investors instead of focusing on the business. So um, I don't know. I just I, I enjoyed selling the company. I never really enjoyed the money raising process. Um, and then I like the idea of having a lot of flexibility. So I don't, to each their own. But I think sometimes these VC deals can really backfire on you. Um, Unless they're the real big ones, you've got a really good idea and you've got an amazing team, the timing's right, you're showing serious traction, serious growth, kind of like the Calendly business. You know, I also have friends who founded MailChimp out of Atlanta, a couple of my friends, and uh, they bootstrapped that whole business, never took on any financing and sold it, I think, for $12 billion to Intuit. Wow. Yeah, they each, they're each worth, I think they're top 250 on the... Um, on the on the billionaire list, wow, super Ab exciting! Above, <laughs> above Mark Cuban, and then oh, super wow. nicest guys, you know. But they just never took on any external financing, never gave away any equity. Just the two of them, six bill each. <laughs> Jeez, well, a, a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom there, and you know, and obviously you have a lot of freedom with multiple exits. And my understanding is you're traveling around a lot now, and you're kind of getting to the nomad. Uh, space. If you could, could you speak a little bit to uh, maybe your travel adventures or maybe more towards what you're doing now with NomadX and what you're trying to do there? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, we've been, I've been working on NomadX since like 2016, 17. My wife and I, we had our last exit, just traveled for like four years straight, went to a lot of really cool places. We, we usually try and um, schedule our, or organize our travel around passion points. So you know, we love long distance hiking. We love snowboarding, you know, so it's like um, we try to go to go to places where we can really like have an epic adventure. Uh, but then uh, and then we also like going to more like the villages, like in the winter, like we've been to uh, Chamonix in France uh, this past winter for a few months. We get like a, a ski pass for the whole season. And uh, yeah, just hang out there. Have a bunch of friends come visit us. Uh, we've done the same thing in Innsbruck. We spent a bunch of time up in Austria. You know, this winter, I think we're going to head down to Brazil. Um, but with Nomad X, uh, yeah, we started it really as a community and accommodation business. We ended up selling the accommodation business uh, during the pandemic because it was uh, the technology was costing us a lot to build. We, we were still in the early stages of getting traction. And then I realized, like, I, it, I didn't really enjoy the accommodation business that much because a lot of people that were going around the platform um working with the host and the guests 
apps and it's hard to scale. And then all of a sudden Facebook kind of moved into our category because we were really focused on the month to month uh, rentals, about half the price of Airbnb. Uh, but we also had a community side of the business. And one, there's a guy here in Portugal, Gonzalo Hall, who's a top 10 a future work influencer. He's top, t- top 20 digital nomad around the world. Started a project on Madeira Island, which is a Portuguese island off the coast of Morocco. And uh, we, we formed a partnership uh, with the government there. And we've been launching nomad villages, nomad cities. Uh, we even have a little nomad island in the Madeira Islands. And, uh, and it just became super popular. It happened during the pandemic and we got some press. And next thing you knew, we were like in CNN, Washington Post, GQ magazine, Wired magazine. It was like the mirror. I mean, probably over 100 journals writing about us. And at the moment, I'd say there's about 2,000 nomads there. And what we do is we bring in super fast Wi-Fi into the villages at like 500 megabytes. We have community managers. We turn the cultural centers into co-working spaces. So all the co-working is free. The whole community is free. It's basically funded by the government. And they're looking to bring in tech workers. You know, beyond Madeira used to be more of a retiree place. Um, And then we have all sorts of stuff going on during the day from like yoga and meditation in the morning to group lunches. Um, to events in the evening, like workouts or swimming. And then uh, we have sunset parties on Fridays, which I helped to organize. We call them Purple Fridays on Madeira, which are kind of becoming legendary at this point. <laughs> and then on the weekends, the hiking, it's like Jurassic Park. So people love the hiking. And there's a lot of young people. I mean, probably like what, 25 to 55, mostly I'd say 25 to 45, average age, early 30s. Mostly people are single. Some people have a partner. And uh, yeah, just super, super fun, really, really nice community. It's like a safe place. And um, yeah, people just love it because uh, so many people have been missing the connection during the pandemic. And then now with remote work really taking off, yeah, people realize that they don't necessarily have to be at home or you know near to home. Now people are getting more adventurous. So we started that project. It was super successful, won the, the, the most innovative award uh, for travel in Portugal this last year, which was a big award for us. And then we have the same similar project going on at Cape Verde, which used to be an old uh, Portuguese colony south of Madeira. And then we opened up, uh, which was the first nomad village in uh, in uh, South America, a place called Pipa, um, where we're doing the exact same thing. Amazing kite surfing, surfing, beach volleyball, you know, renting a place for like 200 euros a month is it, you can get a really nice place and it's very, very safe. So. You know, we're looking to do more and more projects like this, almost like a repopulation, sustainability project, even bringing local knowledge to the local communities, helping them learn how to work remotely, learning skill sets um, so they don't have to leave the island or leave their hometowns to find good work opportunities. So we think, yeah, there's a huge opportunity there. My business partner, like he's been invited to Estonia and he gets he speaks at all the major conferences. Um, he's a big Portuguese guy, so I guess it's like the Dilbert principle. He's really good with the, he's really good with the government officials. Uh, he he used to be a professional beach volleyballer, so I think for him, if they have beach volleyball, that that's his holy grail. But I played a little paddle tennis against him. He's he's very very good athlete. I didn't realize how good of an athlete he was until I played against him this last couple of weeks. So yeah, it's a lot of fun, and he knows a lot of the people in the industry, and we're just trying to do something really really cool. I think from a business model, we haven't really nailed down the business model yet, other than just getting funded by the governments at the moment. And um, yeah, we're evolving that model quite a bit. And uh, I think everyone that's been 
uh, to Madeira's really loved it. It was like outside of the top 100 on Nomad list and then has been as high as like number two at one point. So it's just been like a really successful project where Nomads, they weren't going there. And uh, we've been bringing the Nomads, especially during the pandemic. And now they continue to come back year after year after year. So it's, it's really nice, especially the Nomads in Lisbon because it gets a little cold in the winter. So Madeira is a nice escape instead of having to go to Thailand or to Bali or someplace like that. Although a lot of them, you know, may go head towards Asia, you know, that's popular with the nomads. What do you think will be the next uh, travel destination for like nomads and uh, like nobody apart from Madeira? Do you think like, what, what do you see in the future? Yeah, well, um, well, I think uh, for us, we, we don't, we don't want to create, uh, well, like here in Portugal, Lisbon's problematic because you have so many tourists and there's a lot of nomads. I don't think the nomads are the problem really, but Everyone tries to blame the nomads for gentrification and any sort of issues going on. But generally, I think the nomads are really good for the local communities because they, they set up shop. They, you know, sometimes they move to the country, you know, through the, the residency visas or the nomad visas. Uh, but we really like uh, Brazil a lot at the moment. Uh, it's a little dangerous in some of the major cities, but places like Kipa are very, very safe. Um, so we're going to be doing some stuff down in Brazil, which I think is really popular. Um, obviously like you know, Buenos Aires, I think has really hit the top of the list at the moment. I think a lot of it comes down to the economics. So it's like, you know, if it's a, if it's a nice place to go to, if it's very, if it's safe and, uh, the dollar goes a long way where you're starting to see, like, for example, I mean, I think you're down in Mexico, yeah. uh, but it's some areas are starting to get overcrowded with these younger nomads and kind of destroying the communities a bit. So I think there's a, there's a balance you got to kind of try and find, um, because if you go into these smaller villages, sometimes it can kind of overwhelm the location a bit. Um, and, uh, anyway, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, don't, I have to ask Gonzalo really, cause he's, <laughs> he's got the master list, but we also think there's a lot of interesting opportunities, even central Portugal, where there's a lot of people that are, it's like a repopulation in the, the central villages. There's a lot of the younger kids are leaving the villages. And so we're going to try and repopulate them with nomads, bring some more economic activity. And then even the south of Portugal is really nice because they've got some of the best beaches in the world. You know, you spend some time in Lagos, but I think Porto Mal, Tavira, um, Albufera is really nice. And uh, we're going to do a big conference in Albufera later on this year. Uh, um, and uh, yeah. I think uh, I think Gonzalo was talking about Albania as a place that he really likes. Albania. So I love Japan. So for me, it's like I mean, it's a little far from where I'm at at the moment. But I think during the winter and for skiing and snowboarding, it's amazing, and the prices are pretty good. And you know, it's just it's an amazing place to live. So I think uh, for me, if I'm moving somewhere next, probably gonna be Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's excellent. No, yeah, love love the story. Love the moving around. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from you. Uh, and then, of course, I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast or, or this recording uh, would find alignment, whether it's the nomad side, the business side, the, the travel, the mindset, the acquisitions, the exits. Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody was interested in getting in contact with you, uh, where can they go ahead and do that? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn is really the best. Just uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll try and weed through all the spam, but... Yeah, just let me know you heard you, you're connecting with me because of the podcast, and uh, then I'll, I'll I'll flag it and get back to you. <laughs> yeah, okay, excellent. Yeah, we appreciate that. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Matt and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day uh, to come on the show. 
uh, we really, really, really value your time. And uh, well, I guess we'll be in touch for the future and uh, hope to see you maybe in uh, Lisbon or one of these other places that you, that you set up. Yeah. Thanks so much, Reggie. I was, yeah, I was checking out your LinkedIn profile and I was like, uh, yeah, Matt was telling me about you and, the, and I was checking out your profile. I was like, wow, this guy is like super, super impressive, <laughs> especially like running the nuclear oper operations in the U.S. I'm glad nothing happened, but, uh, that's like quite some responsibility and, uh, he, he really sings your praises. So I think, yeah, what you guys are up to is really, really good and best of luck with your endeavors and, uh, congrats working with Matt. I think I really like Matt a lot. So. I think you guys will have a lot of success together. Sweet. Yeah, when, I first, when I first met Reggie, I said, I'd need to be working with you. <laughs> That's like a couple of years ago. I was like, I was like, we need to do something together. We have to. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And of course, like Matt always speaks of high regard for you as well. So just want to connect with you. And I figured what better way to do it than a podcast. So uh, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll, we'll take it from there and we'll be in touch. All right. See you guys. Thanks so much, Reggie. Cheers. Thanks.